Good morning, church. Well, I know you've been welcomed already a couple times, but again, uh, this is Christ Community Bible Church, if you didn't know that. And we say every Sunday, and we have for several months now, that we are trusting Christ and treasuring Christ. We are trusting Him for the impossible, and we are treasuring Him as our deepest delight. The long version of that is our mission statement, which is that we exist as a church to do three things, to prize, to portray, and to proclaim the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. So even though this doesn't, may not look like much, it's a smaller group of people in just one city, in one state, in one part of the country, in one part of the planet, on one planet in this massive solar system, one solar system out of billions and billions and billions of galaxies in the universe, what we're doing here has in, e- incredible eternal significance. Why? because this is about the living God and us meeting the living God through his word. And just to remind you, we, um, a handful of weeks ago, we did a vision series on our church and we talked about where we're headed as a church and I just want to remind you that we are in uh, uh, a five-year stage in our church calling what we're calling internal impact. What that means is, is that we are in a stage right now where we are seeking to grow in how to be a church, how to do the one another's, how to equip the saints, how to do all the things that churches are called to be and do. That's what we are. We are going to, essentially what we're doing is we are seeking to build upon a foundation to be the kind of church that changes the world. Because we're not just content to uh, have an impact that stays only in Arlington or in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, are we? By no means. What we want to be is a global outpost of joy in a world of despair. What we want to be is a launch site for global ministry, starting from here, starting from this city, starting from this building right here, from this congregation right here. We want to make a global impact for the glory of Jesus Christ. And yet, the way to become the kind of church that we all want this church to be, we have to begin in a place where we increase in internal church health first. So my plea for you um, is that everything and anything we offer as a church, I just encourage you, no obligation, no one's putting pressure on you or a gun to your head, but I am strongly encouraging you to be a part of everything that we do and offer as a church to, to build up the health of this congregation so that we can be that launch site for global ministry. Let's learn how to be a church once again, and I just want to commend you. You're doing an incredible job. I see growth. I see God at work. I see God's word changing and transforming your lives. I see relationships being built uh, as as one of the elders. I just want to commend you and thank you. Uh, I'm grateful for you. You are a sweet congregation, and so be encouraged. You are an encouragement to me and the elders, and we are praying for you every week by name that Christ would work in your midst. Well, I want to begin by saying um, that as people created in God's image, we all have this innate hunger for discovery, don't we? We're all born innately and inherently curious. I mean, there, there is something, tell me if I'm wrong, there is something deep within the soul that finds something insanely gratifying in discovering ancient secrets and solving mysteries Fixing problems, discovering secrets, making connections between different things. Am am I wrong about that? Maybe it looks different in different people's lives, but we all have that. I mean, there is within each one of us an inner Sherlock Holmes, an inner Indiana Jones that is fascinated by 
discovering ancient treasure, discovering secrets, finding clues, making connections between different things. I think we'd all agree at some level, we're all like that. And what I want to say is that I think this morning I can satisfy that itch just a little bit. I believe this morning I can channel your inner Indiana Jones by showing you some sacred secrets and mysteries in the pages of Scripture that will cause you to see, to, the, the, so that you will never look upon your Bible the same again. Because this morning what we're going to do is we're going to take an ancient expedition. In fact, it's going to be an expedition to the ancient of all other ancients before America, before Rome, before Egypt, before the flood, all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, to the very first people created, to the first ever sin, and not only that, to the first ever prophecy made in the Bible, which just happens to be a prophecy about none other than Jesus Christ himself. In other words, this morning, what I want to do is I want to show you the antique roots of your salvation. I want you to see the ancient threads of your redemption. I want you to see that the Messiah in the New Testament that we love and treasure and adore and is satisfied by, I want you to see that he was already predicted in the book of Genesis centuries and centuries before he ever even came to earth, which tells us the Lamb of God being slain for sinners was not an afterthought. This was not plan B. This was not some last-minute roll of the dice in an attempt to save sinners. No, the first glimpse we get of the Savior to come is found even in the very first book of the Bible, centuries before he ever showed his face, which means Genesis is not just ancient history, it is salvation history, which means it is your history. And it is absolutely riveting. And so this morning in preparation for our series in the book of Daniel, which is going to happen in December, we continue this little mini-series on the Messiah in the Old Testament called The Return of the King. The return of the king, and the reason why we're doing this series is, is not only to prepare you for the great prophetic feast found in the book of Daniel, but ultimately, ultimately the aim of this series is to cause you to be captivated by Jesus Christ. Because my aim as a pastor, my aim as your pastor, is not to entertain you. It is not to please you, necessarily. It's not to get you to like me, although I want you to like me. I like you, I want you to like me, but that's not first my job. No, my job, my aim, my ambition, what, what I live for in this life is to labor in the text of Scripture to help you see Jesus Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. And one of the best, one of the most creative ways to do that is to take a walk in the annals of the Old Testament text. To taste the sweet wine and the refined cuisine of the Hebrew scriptures because there what we find to our amazement and not, is not just a bunch of interesting stories that kind of, you know, the sort of tickle the intellect and have some kind of relevance to our lives. What we find there in the Old Testament text are sneak previews and theatrical trailers of the Messiah to come who has come and who will come again. So this morning we go all the way back to the beginning. The beginning of history, the beginning of time, 
the beginning of the human race, the beginning of the very plan of salvation itself. You see, what you're about to see is not only the painful ruin of the human race, but the promised redemption of the human race. What you're going to see is not only paradise lost, but in the very same chapter, you're going to see paradise promised again in the future. What you're about to see is not only the emergence of Satan to begin his rebellion, but you'll see the promised destruction of Satan to end his rebellion. Why? Because the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the the offspring of Jesse, the Son of Man, the King of Israel is predicted and promised and prophesied centuries before he ever shows up. So I just need you to know There's hope in this text for you. I'm serious. There's hope for you. Hope for your lives. Hope for your struggles. Hope for your marriages. Hope for your kids. Hope for the deepest pains and depression and disappointment in your lives. Why? Because what you're going to get at Christ and everything you were created to need and enjoy forever is found ultimately in him. So here we go. Paradise lost, paradise promised again. Here's where we're going. I don't know if you have half sheets or not, but here's the plan. This morning, I want you to see from our text three stages of sin's progression. Three stages of sin's progression into the world so that you will feel the terrors of sin and the triumph of Christ. That's where we're going. Three stages of sin's progression into the world so that you will feel the terrors of sin and the triumph of Christ. The first stage of sin's progression is this. Number one, the deception of the snake. The deception of the snake. Now, you know, you know that at this point in Genesis, the universe has had a very short but riveting history, hasn't it? Not long before chapter three, Yahweh put his finishing touches on the universe, on this theater known as the universe. And in this theater, he created the stage upon which the plan of salvation would unfold called the earth. And on that earth, he put a beautiful, glorious, breathtaking, exotic garden called Eden. And in that garden, he put the first two people created and their names were Adam and Eve, our first parents. And you see, they lived in paradise. It was perfect. Everything was as it should be. Everything that we wish we had now, they got to experience, at least for a while. And you have to understand that what made it paradise, what made it better than Hawaii a thousand times over, get this now, was that they had direct access to God himself. Think about that. They spent time being personally exhilarated by the God of the universe. They saw God. They were with God. Psalm 1611 says, in God's presence is fullness of joy. In his right hand, there are pleasures forever. That's what they got to experience. And without question, Adam and Eve had a very bright future plan for themselves all sorts of hopes and dreams and and plans just waiting in the future, kids, grandkids, building a global kingdom as the king and queen of the human race. And yet, before any of those plans could come to fruition, a very unexpected visitor enters onto the stage and we see him in verse one. Look at the text. 
It says, now the snake was more crafty than all of the animals of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say that you cannot eat from any tree in the garden? Now you feel it, don't you? Whoever, whatever this thing is, his presence makes us feel very uncomfortable, doesn't it? I mean, without warning, without notice, without introduction, he just kind of sneaks up on us in the text. He just appears there in the text. He, he catches us off guard. Like, like an intruder in our home, something is not right. Something feels strange. Something is fishy here. And, and Moses tells us very little about who this is. In fact, he almost tells us nothing about who this is, but we know exactly who this is, don't we? We do. We do. This snake, this diabolical reptile, as it turns out, is none other than Satan himself incarnated undercover as a serpent. And notice there's zero explanation of where he came from, how he got there, what he's doing, what his agenda is, all we know is that he is cunning and disguised and inconspicuous. And you notice he didn't show up as a dog or as a human or as an elephant. Why? Because that's too obvious. That's too conspicuous. That's too loud. That's too noisy. No, he showed up as a serpent. Careful, calculating, quiet, camouflaged, covert. I mean, you almost don't even know that a serpent is there until it's almost too late. And he, notice how Moses describes him. It says, and the serpent was more crafty, shrewd than all of the animals of the field which Yahweh God had made. Do, do you see that? More crafty than anything God had made. In other words, what we're dealing with here is a sneak. <laughs> someone with an agenda, someone with a trick up his sleeve, a master manipulator. In other words, there's more here than meets the eye. And you notice that his target is the woman. And, and what is so chilling to me here about this text is how, is how he just sneaks up on her, catches her off guard without any warning, without any introduction, without any, without any smooth social pleasantries. He just slithers behind her back and he catches her off guard and he asks her a question that reveals just how dangerous and devious he really is. Look again at what he asks the woman. And he said to the woman, did God really say that you cannot eat from any tree in the garden? I mean, I mean do you smell what the serpent does here? How he rewords God's original command to make him look stingy and tight-fisted. Did, hold on a second, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Wait, what? No, <laughs> he didn't say that. He didn't say that at all. He said you can't eat from one tree, one tree out of thousands and thousands of trees, probably orchards surrounding their house with only one tree being forbidden. And yet, Satan tweaked the wording of God's original command just enough to contaminate her view of God by questioning his word and making him look cheap and casting a shadow of doubt on his motives and generosity. Really? God won't let you eat from any tree in the garden? Huh. And you're okay with that? I'm just asking here. Do you see? It's poisonous manipulation at its finest. And, and again, think about it. She feels like we do. 
We're just trying to play catch up here. We're just trying to figure out, okay, who is this? And, and why is he asking me questions? And, and he's a snake and why does he talk? I, I, mean, I mean, we are not prepared for this conversation and neither is she, which is why you can see the poison immediately begin to take effect. Look at her response in verses two and three. And the woman said to the snake, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it and you shall not touch it, otherwise you shall die. Now, what is so astonishing to me here is that she does not seem at all surprised that this snake can talk. And, and some people think that this proves that somehow people before the fall could talk. And that most people just write this off as a pre-scientific mythological fairy tale. But I say, I argue, Adam and his wife should have been incredibly suspicious the second this thing opened its mouth. You see, a talking snake would have been just as creepy then as it is now. It would have been exactly the same, horrifying. Because as we'll see in a few minutes, Adam was right there the whole time watching this thing unfold. Was he not? I mean, he was right there. He passively stood by watching this monster seduce his wife when he was the most qualified one to recognize that what they were dealing with at this moment, rather who they were dealing with was absolutely evil because Adam named the animals, did he not? And was he not personally acquainted with each one of them? And did he not know that animals can't talk? He should have known that, and he did know that, and yet he said nothing. And did you notice her response to the snake? She minimizes both God's generosity and she softens the consequences of the severity of sin. In other words, we can tell by her words that something horrifying is beginning to take place. She is beginning to see things from the serpent's perspective. And, and you know, up till now, Satan has been a very good predator because you know how predators operate, don't you? They, they don't move in for the kill all at once. No, they wait and they buy their time. They slowly groom and condition their victims until their victim willingly places themselves into their clutches. And when their victim is at their most vulnerable, then they go for the throat, which is exactly what he does in verse four. Look at the text. And the snake said to the woman, you certainly shall not die. And there it is. The first direct contradiction to God's word. But what's really interesting about this, what's so slimy about this, is that it's still a half-truth. Half-true. Half-true. This will feel good. This is really good. It looks good to the eyes, and it will make you wise, and it will destroy you. But he didn't say that. No, he doesn't dare say that because Satan doesn't come selling lies. He comes selling lies mixed with truth, which makes them all the more believable and harder to spot. And yet it's true, isn't it? They wouldn't die physically at first. In fact, Adam wouldn't die for another 930 years. But what the serpent didn't tell them is that all their death was not immediate. It was inevitable. Their funerals would come. 
And he also conveniently forgot to tell them that the kind of death they would die immediately was spiritual death. Their all satisfying connection with Yahweh would be severed and cut off and every single human being born after them would be born spiritually dead, slaves to sin. Everyone after them with the exception of Christ subjecting the entire human race to ruin and destruction. But he didn't, he didn't mention that. No, he left that conveniently embedded in fine print. Why? Because he's a murderer. And as Christ said in John 8, 44, he has been a murderer from the beginning. And he goes on with his little charade in verse five, plunging the knife of deception deeper into her brain. Look what he says. You won't die. Why? For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes shall be opened and you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. I mean, you see what he does, right? When he says for there, he's explaining why it is that they will not die. And his argument is, God has lied to you. You believe that? You think you're going to die? No, 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 no. God only said that to scare you away. You won't die because God has got a secret that he doesn't want you to know. He doesn't want you to eat from the fruit because then your eyes will be opened. If you eat the fruit, you will be like him and then you will have the secret knowledge that he wants to keep for himself. And so Satan's point is, God is holding out on you. He doesn't want the competition. He's afraid of you. He is threatened by you. You see, he wants to keep you from what you most deserve, from what's best for you. And what's best for you is hanging right on that tree right over there, which means your ultimate joy and fulfillment is just one bite away. And so you see a strategy, don't you? He sticks his slimy claws inside reality and he pulls reality inside out. He makes God sound stingy and tight-fisted and scared, and petty, and jealous. He makes the consequences for sin seem thrilling and irresistible. In other words, Satan has just told them the lie that your sin tells you every single day of your lives, which is God is the obstacle to your joy and satisfaction, not the object to your joy and satisfaction. When the opposite is true, And at the end of the day, was he not offering them the opportunity to be gods themselves? You will be like God. You will be like God. You see, that's the issue right there, wasn't it? Not some stupid piece of produce hanging on a branch somewhere. The issue was the glory of God. The issue was the centrality of God. The issue was the supremacy of God. The tragedy of the entire scene at the end of the day was that God was being replaced. So the point is that same God ignoring, God exchanging self-worship of the human race of which we are sometimes still prone as believers began right here in this moment. So the question is, do do you see the haunting implications of this exchange between the Satan, between the evil one and our first mother? Do, Do you see the implications of this? There are so many implications. I only have time to give you one. One implication of this exchange here. And the implication is this. The strategies of the evil one to bring ruin in our lives 
are so much more subtle than you could possibly imagine. I mean, most people have these weird, strange, bizarre, superstitious, Hollywood, CGI-inspired ideas of how Satan operates, but I'll tell you what is satanic. Anything that deviates from God's word, that is satanic. That is the essence of satanic. That's the devil's jam. That's his thing. That's what he does. Anything that even remotely suggests the possibility that God's word is insufficient, inadequate, imperfect, or irrelevant is no different than the devil himself saying, did God really say that? Oh, oh, how we need to defend against the devil's schemes by being gluttons for God's word. The way to combat the subtle, the subtle tricks of the evil one is to meditate on God's word day and night. And that's the first stage of sin's progression into the world so that you'll feel the terrors of sin and the triumph of Christ, which brings us to the second stage of sin's progression, number two, the depravity of the couple. The depravity of the couple. Because just like a virus in a computer, the evil one's words are in her system. Infecting the hard drive of her soul. Her brain is twisted and scrambled, a, a jumbled mess of manipulation. And with the total annihilation of paradise hanging in the balance and the eternal ruin of the human race teetering on the brink, we read this in verse 6. Look at the text. And the woman saw that good was the tree for food and that it was beautiful to the eyes and desirable was the tree to make one wise. Stop there. I mean, at this point, is it even a debate in her mind? I mean, is there any question about what she's going to do here? I mean, she has been converted and convinced that God only got in the way of what this tree had to offer. The thrill of the forbidden was just too irresistible for her. It was too alluring. It was too enticing. It was too seductive. And so watch, watch with terror in real time the unraveling of the human race. It says first that the woman saw that good was the tree for food. Don't make a mistake. That, that doesn't mean that merely that she was hungry. It meant that she was hungry for something other than God. Her appetites, her cravings for a false satisfaction and a forbidden pleasure had consumed her. Next, it says that the woman saw that the tree was beautiful to the eyes, which means the tree was aesthetically pleasing, which means it was, it was so seemingly irresistible that God and his infinite worth and value and beauty and supremacy, his perfect track record of love and generosity, not to mention his warning against sin, that meant nothing in the moment. Having this was the only thing that really mattered. God got in the way of what this tree had to offer, and that's exactly how it feels to be tempted, isn't it? It's exactly how it feels. Have you ever diagnosed what it feels like, what it is to be tempted? A temporary insanity and amnesia that willingly forgets that God even exists. 
And you see, what makes sin so dangerous, get this now, what makes sin so dangerous is that it, it persuades you that the pleasure that it has to offer is so good that the consequences you suffer for that sin will be worth it in the end. So what? So what that you ruin your marriage or devastate your family or sever your relationships or kill your church or go to hell or blow up the world? So what? It'll be worth it! Or at least that's what sin would have us believe. But you see, the solution to that, they call it the holy countermeasure against sin's deception is to, as they say, count your blessings. And by that I mean count your blessings in Christ. In other words, the secret, I am not even kidding, the secret to overcoming sin and temptation in real time is to rehearse to your own soul the endless riches that you have in Jesus Christ. For instance, in Christ, I am born again. You need to say this to yourself, not now, but well, always, but especially when you're tempted. I am born again. I am a new creation. In Christ, I have forgiveness. Every sin permanently deleted and canceled. In Christ, I am reconciled to God as the treasure of my soul. In Christ, the firing squad of God's anger has been called off and canceled. In Christ, I am justified, declared not guilty. In Christ, I am adopted as a son, redeemed from sin, indwelt by the Spirit. For crying out loud, I have eternal life, which is everlasting and ever-increasing enjoyment of God forever and ever and ever. And when those riches that you have in Christ grip you, all of a sudden the counterfeit pleasures of sin lose their deceptive appeal. But finally, we see in the text that it says that the tree was desirable to make one wise. In other words, God himself and access to him, that wasn't enough. That wasn't good enough. She, she needed something more. There, there had to be something deeper. There had to be something more. There had to be something more thrilling, more beautiful, more satisfying than knowing God. He is only keeping me back from reaching my full potential. God is an obstacle. He is a roadblock. I need something more than him. Or at least that's what she thought. You see, what this was, was an Eve-centered independence that was so enticing and alluring. The, the wisdom and freedom that she think she needed was outside of God. And so being fully convinced that this was the right thing to do, despite God's warnings to the contrary, she reaches up and she pulls the pin. She detonates the world. Look again at verse 6. And she took from the fruit of the tree, and she ate, and she gave even to her husband with her, and he ate. I mean, when you see this, don't you feel a little bit like when you're watching a, a scary movie and the characters are, are running into certain doom you're, or they're walking into certain death or they're about to do something stupid and you yell at the TV screen. Have you ever done that before? You kind of want to do this to the text. You see this unfolding in the text. You want to say, no, Eve, no, what are you thinking? Don't, don't do that. Don't go there. Adam, what are you thinking? Don't eat that. Don't do that. 
but it was too late. It was too late. She ate, and in that moment, paradise was over. The, the train wreck of all human history was now underway. Think about it. It took less than three hours for the Titanic to sink into the Atlantic Ocean, and probably less than three minutes it took for humanity to sink into an ocean of sin. And I want you to notice something staggering in the text. Maybe you haven't seen this before. Notice very closely. And she took from the fruit of the tree, and she ate, and she gave even to her husband with her, with her, and he ate. You know, family meals together are an awesome thing. This family meal was not awesome. Sharing food with one another is a generous thing to do. This was not generous. This was absolutely evil. Again, this is the first time that Adam has been mentioned in the text, isn't it? And, and doesn't it kind of leave us wondering, okay, where was he this whole time? Was he out raking leaves or working in the, the field? I mean, what was he doing? No, no, the text is clear and explicit. He was with her the whole time. He watched this horrifying transaction unfold, and yet he said nothing. He was complicit. He was more than complicit. I mean, she was deceived, but his sin was pure, willful disobedience or stupidity or all of the above. He stood right there the whole time watching this predator corner his wife, and yet he said nothing. His role in marriage was to be the leader, part of which meant he is to be the protector, and his passivity from the beginning is absolutely tragic. He heard the entire conversation. He had the chance to get between his wife and this monster, and he blew it. He had plenty of time to call on Yahweh for help. But he was silent and passive, and spineless, like many men today. And we see the immediate aftermath of their fatal decision. Look at verse 7. It says, And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed together fig leaves, and they made for themselves loincloths. Isn't that interesting? Satan was exactly right. Everything he promised, he delivered. But not exactly in the way he made it sound. He promised them that their eyes would be open and their eyes were open, but not in the way he made it seem. He told them that they would be like God and they did kind of sort of become like God in some way, but not in the way he made it sound. The oceanic depths of pleasure and freedom for which they longed and which they were promised turned out only be a, to be a soul-crushing disappointment. And the text says that they knew that they were naked. It's not like they didn't know that before. The point is, before this moment, they had nothing to be ashamed of. There was nothing to hide. No secrets, no fears, no inner regrets or darkness, no, no shadows, no skeletons lurking in the closet. They could stand before God and one another with a clean conscience, but now they were guilty. Their innocence was lost. They were contaminated. They were polluted. They were damaged goods before the God of the universe. The, the image of God in which they had been created had been mangled and, and, and mutilated. It was an eyesore. Everything had changed. Their new knowledge and newfound self-consciousness was not paradise. It was the end of paradise. And everything had changed. And so what do you do? What do you do in that situation? Well, 
They could not undo what had been done, but maybe they could superficially cope with what had been done. So look what they did at the end of verse 7. It says, And they sewed together fig leaves, and they made for themselves loincloths. <laughs> I mean, this is pitiful and sad, and we know exactly how they feel, don't we? As a hasty and impulsive coping mechanism, they grab some plants and sew them together and put them over those parts of the body that were now shameful to expose. And the reason why they covered those parts in particular, get this, is because their shame and their mistake and their depravity would be most clearly seen in what those parts would produce, namely a family, a society, a population, and a world filled with totally depraved sinners under the wrath and judgment of God. Those parts became instruments spreading corruption to the ends of the earth and they couldn't bear to look at those parts any longer and so their their self-made efforts to hide their shame while understandable was pathetic and even sinful wasn't it and yet we know we know exactly how they felt we all have enough expertise at sinning to know exactly what they were going through and yet our first parents, instead of confessing their sin, they, they did something that's going to look and sound very familiar to you. Look at verse 8. With paradise lost now, and the, the bitter taste of sin still lingering in their mouths, look at what we see. And it says, And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden. A couple ways to translate the next phrase here. In the wind of the day maybe, cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from before Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. So God shows up to the crime scene. In a moment of terror and panic, they did the only thing they could think of. They hid. They hid and, and, and they ran. And that was a desperation move, right? I mean, it makes zero sense to hide from the God who knows the secrets of the heart, but that is what sin does, doesn't it? It does the insane. It does the delusional. It does the irrational. In our narcissistic fear, we try to hide from the one who loves to save sinners, who loves to give grace, who always and only wants what's best for us, and what's best for us is his son, and is in his son is not only the forgiveness that you need for the sins of the past, but also in his son, get this now, is all the power you need to overcome temptation in the future. It makes zero sense, literally zero sense to run from God. This is insane. And yet, maybe, just maybe, some of you in this room, maybe you also are running from God. Maybe there's something in your lives buried, troubling, unconquerable, and secret. I'm not assuming, I'm just asking and yet, if that's you, I just want you to know that God is trying to use this text to get your attention and to look you in the eye and to let you know that there is hope for you. There is grace, redeeming, 
restoring, renovating grace in his son that not only is designed to ransack your lives and turn them inside out, but to renovate and to refurbish and to renew your lives for his glory. If you are stuck in something, if you need help, you need to come and talk to the elders. We want to help you. We're here to serve you. We're here to care for you. We are, we are instruments. We are people in need of change, wanting to help people in need of change. That's what the church is. And so please, I beg you, don't keep anything secret. Please come get help. But speaking of his son, speaking of God's son, that brings us to the third stage of sin's progression. Number three, the devastation of sin. The devastation of sin. So paradise is lost. And the half-naked couple trembles deep in the forest, hoping that God is just going to go away and, and leave them alone. But that's not going to happen, is it? Because these are his people. This is his plan. This is his planet. This is his universe. This is his garden. This is all about the display of his glory. And so God shows up to deal with the serpent and our newly fallen parents who took the bait. And here's where the real intrigue begins. Look at verse 9. And Yahweh God called to who? To the man. And he said to him, where are you? Where are you, Adam? Where are you, man? I mean, isn't that interesting? When God shows up, he doesn't first come looking for Satan. He doesn't first call out to the woman. No, he comes looking for the man. And what that reminds us of is that it is the charge before God. It is the responsibility of men before God to lead their families. And so you just need to know that when God comes knocking at the door of your house, men, he is looking for the man of the house. And Yahweh asks where Adam is, not because he doesn't already know, but because it's time to come forward and to confess what he, have, he has done, of which his crimes are many, by the way. And Adam, hidden, trembling deep into the forest, calls out in verse 10. Look what he says. He says, I, I heard your sound in the garden, and I was afraid because I am naked and I hid myself. What I love about this is Adam doesn't actually say where he is. He doesn't actually answer the question. He doesn't say where he is. He's not ready to yield that information. But like a guilty child, he blurts out why it is that he's hiding. And why is he hiding? What reason does he give? Because he's naked. <laughs> and again, that means he was guilty. He was defiled. He was ashamed. He was contaminated. He was damaged goods before the God of the universe, which prompts the question in verse 11. And God said, who told you that you were naked? And the Hebrew words this, I'm going to pause here. The Hebrew words this very interesting and it places interesting emphasis on the question. I'll read it. I'll translate it directly and you, and you listen for the emphasis here. Who told you that you were naked? From the tree which, it, which I commanded you to not eat from it, did you eat? See what he does there? He uses a rhetorical question to graciously elicit a confession from the fallen couple. And in answer to God's questions, there, there were a number of really good responses. I have sinned. I am guilty. I need mercy. I am sorry. Please forgive me. Any one of those responses would do. But unfortunately, Adam chose none of the above. Look at verse 12. And the man said, the woman who you gave to me, she gave to me from the tree and I ate. 
The number of sins there are just multiplying exponentially. Instead of brokenhearted confession and repentance, instead what we get is excuses and blame shifting. And notice how Adam simultaneously blames both God and the woman at the exact same time. God, I don't know why you're looking at me. I don't know why you're picking on me right now, but I just want you to know the woman who you gave to me, hey, look, I only ate what she gave me. I don't know why you're looking at me. You have, she is the problem in the universe, not me. Which means what he did here was he committed the sin that you and I commit every single day in our lives, namely that we forget that the greatest evil in the world is not outside of you. The greatest evil in the world is inside of you. The biggest problem in your lives, put it this way, the biggest problem in my life and in my marriage and in my family and in my work is me. I oftentimes don't believe that because I am in the image of my first father and I am tempted to not believe this and I deny this every single day, but this is a fact. This is a theological fact. And what's interesting is that without even responding to Adam's foolish, guilty excuse, he moves on to the woman to expose her guilt also. Look at verse 13. And Yahweh God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the snake deceived me and I ate. So, so God puts her on the spot to expose her treachery also and he asks her, what is this that you have done? What were you thinking? And in response, her, her, to give her credit, her, her response is a slightly more honest than her husband. She says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Slightly more honest, but still one of evasion and blame shifting. She, instead of owning up to the full weight of her crimes, she blames the evil one um, and she, as the sole culprit, as if she had no other choice but to do what, which was strictly forbidden. Now, it's true, she was deceived, that's true, but not in a way that minimized any of the guilt of her crime. And you see, our ancient father and mother at this point, they did not realize the full weight and the repercussions of what their sin would unleash in the world, but they were about to. They were about to. But then Yahweh in verse 14, he turns and he looks at the serpent. And at this point, he is done asking questions. The interrogation is over. Because now in verses 14 through 19, one by one by one, he announces to each of the guilty parties the, the devastating consequences of their sin. And Moses doesn't tell us if this happened face to face or if it happened through, from a distance through the trees. But we do know that everything God is about to say, we still feel even at this very moment. And he begins with the evil one himself. Look at verse 14. And Yahweh God said to the snake, because you did this, you are more cursed than all of the cattle and all of the animals of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Notice, God gives Satan absolutely no opportunity to respond. He's done asking questions Rather, he simply pronounces catastrophic judgments against him and he begins with some terrifying words for the serpent. Look at, look at the beginning of verse 14. He says, you are more cursed, cursed than all of the cattle and all the animals of the field. Notice he is, there is a curse, a hex put on the evil one. What does that mean to be cursed? 
it means there is absolutely no opportunity for repentance ever. It's over for him. It was over for him in the third chapter of the Bible. And he is on borrowed time as he awaits his final irreversible destruction in the lake of fire for all eternity. But notice, notice in verses 14 and 15, we see this curse unfolded in three dreadful manifestations. Manifestation number one, Yahweh says, on your belly you shall go. That does not mean that snakes used to have legs. No, to force someone to crawl in the dirt is the deepest form of humiliation and degradation. Manifestation number two, Yahweh tells the serpent that dust you shall eat all the days of your life. To kick dirt in someone's face and make them eat it is, is disgusting and despicable and inhumane. Even the worst of criminals are treated with more dignity. Satan will receive no such special treatment. He's going to eat dust all the days of his life, which is a metaphorical way to say that he will experience total and utter humiliation, which will culminate one day in hell forever. He is a humiliated monster tormented by his failures and inadequacies to foil God's plan. And then the final manifestation of the curse is by far the most devastating. And I just want you to know, you are not going to believe what you're about to see here. Because you notice, or at least what you will notice, is that it is a curse wrapped inside of a blessing or a blessing wrapped inside of a curse, however you want to put it. In other words, what is a curse for the evil one is a blessing for the human race. The same bite that's poison for him is healing for us. Look and be astonished by verse 15. And I shall put enmity between you and between the woman and between your offspring and between her offspring. He shall crush you on your head. That's the Hebrew word. It is to crush. You shall strike him or bruise him on the heel. I mean, I don't know if you picked up everything that was just said right there, but that is one of the most breathtaking verses in all of the Bible. And the reason for that is because what that is is the first prophecy made in Holy Scripture. And it is a prophecy, no less, about Jesus Christ himself. The Christ that we see in the Gospels, the Christ that we see and know and love, and adore, and treasure. It's Him. He's here. The golden threads of our salvation could be traced back to this moment right here in the text. And so notice very carefully what God says. He says, I shall place enmity between you and between the woman. That word enmity, that means hostility. That means violence. That means a conflict is coming in the future and you notice God is the one who put it there, not Satan, because God is the one who is sovereign and supreme, not Satan. But the question is, what does it mean that there will be hostility and violence between the offspring of the woman and between the offspring of the evil? What, what, to what is God referring? And he states, he alludes to what he's referring in the next phrase. Look what he says. I shall put enmity between your offspring and between her offspring. I just want you to know 
that that word seed or offspring in the Bible, that is one of the most magnificent and theologically loaded statements found in the entirety of the Bible because what it means is a person. It means that someone, a redeemer, a deliverer is coming in the future from the family line of the woman and he himself will be and he will cause the enmity In other words, he is going to pick a fight with a serpent and he is going to win. In a title bout of the universe, he will be the heavyweight champion of the world and we know that because of what God says about him. Look what he says. God says, he shall crush you on your head and you shall strike or bruise him on the heel. You notice, right? There's going to be a conflict coming in the future. The damage done by the serpent will be minimal. The damage done to him will be fatal. Satan will strike him on the heel, but he himself will endure a crippling, blunt force trauma to the skull that will put an end to him once and for all. The serpent has been put on notice His life has an expiration date because one day, one day, the seed, the offspring of the woman will arrive on the scene of history and he will deal the devil a death blow and he will put an end to him once and for all. And so do you see what we have here contained in this verse? What we have is the entire plan of salvation contained in embryonic form. Moses doesn't tell us everything, but he tells us enough. And we know exactly how this is going to end, don't we? The offspring of the woman, the great serpent crusher, is none other than Jesus Christ himself, God incarnate, the lamb to be slain for sinners, and he will crush the head of the serpent in two catastrophic ways. I'm almost done. Number one, he would crush the serpent through his sin-bearing, sacrificial, substitutionary death in the place of hell-deserving sinners. You see, it was at Golgotha, at the cross, that the evil one was publicly defanged. You know why? Because real souls were purchased there. Real sins were paid for there. Everyone whom the Father had chosen and given to his Son were officially acquired out of the slave trade of the evil one. Number two, the offspring Jesus Christ will, will crush the serpent when he triumphantly returns to establish his kingdom at the second coming because one day, one day he will come and establish his invincible eternal kingdom and he will rule the universe from a throne in Jerusalem and when he does, Revelation 20.10 say, says that he will cast him into the lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever and it's true Satan is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's not a small thing. But never, ever forget that the lion of Judah has ripped him open with the claws of sovereign grace. He's already confiscated the devil's greatest weapons, which are unforgiven sin and death. He's already confiscated those, ripped them out of his hand. He, is, he, is at, he lacks weapons. 
And right this minute, the red dragon is but a bleeding, hobbling, pathetic rebel, a delusional maniac who refuses to surrender and, and, and make no mistake, even though at the cross, the death blow was, was dealt at the second coming, Christ will land the final punch. Look at Romans 16, 20 in your notes. It says, and the God of peace shall soon crush Satan under, notice the switch in pronouns, your feet. The, Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So the question is, do you see, and I close with this, do you see where the first Adam failed, the second Adam will succeed? Where the first man fumbled the ball, the Son of Man will make all things be the way they ought to be. The first king and his bride lost the planet, but the king of kings and his blood-bought bride will rule it once again, and he will rule it forever and ever and ever. That is reality. That is the plan. That's how it's all going down in the future, and that changes everything about your lives in the present. And so what Martin Luther said was absolutely true. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Let's pray. O great king and sovereign emperor of the universe, it is astonishing that you became man. It's astonishing that you would become man and you would die, O Christ, that you would take the wrath that you didn't deserve for sins you didn't commit. And we are so thrilled to see the beginning whispers of the plan right here in the third chapter of the Bible, the same chapter in which we see the virus of sin unleashed into the universe, Lord. And this is so thrilling. And I, I pray for hope for us. Would you please give these people hope? Give them encouragement. Give them strength, O Lord. I pray that they would see that Genesis 3 is not just an interesting thing that kind of makes sense out of the Bible. I pray that they would see as a means of survival to their lives. I pray that you would help them in this room, the people see that there is hope for their sin struggles. There is hope for their marriages. There is hope for their kids. There is hope for seemingly unsolvable situations at work. There is hope all because of you, O Christ, the great serpent crusher. And so, Lord, please strengthen us by your word and help us to live lives that put you on display as the all-surpassing treasure of the universe. And it's in your matchless name that we pray. Amen.